This is The Deal with Nisim Black. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Nisim Black, a.k.a. Godsman, a.k.a. the Black Abraham Lincoln, a.k.a. Hitler's Worst Nightmare, a.k.a. Sammy Davis' cousin. I was born in Seattle to hip-hop parents. I got in trouble as a kid, but I was able to make a major life turnaround. I was a Muslim in my younger years. I became a Christian in my teens, only to discover that my soul was Jewish all along. So I grabbed my wife, we picked up, and we left and headed to Israel, where we are today. And if you haven't been here yet, what we're doing on this podcast is discussing just everything from social issues, race, religion, faith, politics, probably not so much, but whatever it is that I feel like needs to be said, um, there's a lot going on with me personally, there's a lot going on in the world, so there's just so much to talk about. So with that, my guest today is Vanessa Zoltan. Vanessa Zoltan is a humanist chaplain and a self-described atheist chaplain. She's a graduate of the Harvard Divinity School and one of the hosts of the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, one of the world's most popular podcasts. This summer, Penguin Random House will publish her book, Praying with Jane Eyre, Reflections on Reading a Sacred Practice. Thank you so much for joining me, Vanessa. I really appreciate you being on. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. It feels like we already have a connection from all the technical mess-ups that were going on before this. And, you know, and people don't get to understand how awesome it is to to go through those first few minutes to be able to get to know somebody. We all are dealing with the same stuff. Yeah, I feel like I already put my best foot forward, not knowing how to work my own recording device. <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, so first of all, I want to learn a little bit about you and how you see yourself. Because you were born Jewish. I think all of your four grandparents were, were Jewish, and I believe they were all Holocaust survivors, correct? Yeah, all Auschwitz survivors. Wow, Auschwitz specifically. Yeah. That's crazy. But, and yet you're a humanist. Yeah. And a self-described atheist chaplain. What does that mean? So I am a practicing Jew in a lot of ways. We do Hanukkah and Seder, and I fast for Yom Kippur, and I'm a vegetarian, which like gets me around most kashrut <laughs> questions. And, you know, I was bat mitzvah at a conservative shul in Los Angeles. But for my grandparents, right, God died in the Holocaust. All four of them went in Orthodox. I would say I, one of my grandfathers sort of lost God before. They went they went into the camps Orthodox and came out atheists. And I don't quite know how to honor them and get myself back to believing in God. Wow. And I love God language. It's often the only word that I can think to use to describe certain things. But the thing that I don't think that religion properly accounts for in a way that I find compelling enough is suffering. Wow. And um, and so that is where I stop. And I see myself as stopped right on the threshold of temple and of the church. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm so interested in what's going on in there. And I think it's where good work happens. And yet I can't quite get myself to go through the door. Wow. Wow. That's interesting because I, I heard a beautiful um, thing from uh, Rabbi Moshe Weinberger. 
who is a rabbi in Woodmere, New York. Um, he has a congregation called Ish Kodesh. His father was also a survivor. And I think the conversation was between him and his father. I can't really remember. But there was a question that was posed of why some people went in to the camps. And of the survivors, some remained religious and some didn't. And he said that people that had such joy and life from their Judaism, all those people returned back to Torah mitzvahs. The people that did not have that simcha zachayim, that, that joy and life from, from Judaism, and it was yira and burdensome, that most of these people did not return back to their Judaism afterwards. Yeah. So it was something that wasn't necessarily the Holocaust itself, but that it could have been that what was it before, right? And I have this question all the time because I'm very in touch and I'm always having conversations with uh, people who, where it's hard for them. You know what? I didn't have the same issues as everybody else. I may have my own issues. God gave me my own bag of problems, right? But growing up in a religious environment and feeling forced or I have to do when I had, you know, I had the opportunity to fall in love with God and then in turn fall in love with the Jewish people and want to join in, you know? So for me, everything was a you get to. You get to do this. You get to put on tefillin. You get to keep Shabbos, you know? So these things for me, it's sort of like it was a different perspective. So I wonder if in any of your digging, were you able to find out what the relationship to Judaism was before they went into the camps? Yeah, and I, I think that the story you told is apt for at least two of my grandparents, of my grandfathers. They grew up in very strict Jewish households um, where they had to move around depending on what government was in town and they had to hide their Judaism. And the thing that I sort of find compelling about the reason that I still would attribute their final atheism to the Holocaust is, you know, there's the idea in religious sociology of the first naivete and the second, like a second invitation into religion, where you believe in sort of a simple form of religion that you get taught as a child, that God is sort of this bearded man in the sky, right? And then hmm. in adolescence, you lose that understanding of religion and can right. really grieve that and then and then come back to it mm-hmm. with a more nuanced understanding and more of a sense of ritual and vote and all of the things that we think are beautiful about religion. And I think that my grandparents, by being in the concentration camps in their late teens, early 20s, that opportunity sort of got traumatized out of them. And I do wonder if they would have found their way back. And I I completely agree that it's just as likely that you were going to come out of the camps renewed in your commitment to God as it was that you would leave an atheist. But, you know, my grandparents left atheists. And so it feels like my way of honoring them to stay true to that. Right. And, you know, that said, my grandfather, when his wife, my grandmother of 60 years passed away, he went to shul twice a day for a year. Wow. But he would sit there and read the L.A. Times. He Like, he had to go. He didn't know how else to grieve. Unfortunately, I hate to say this, you know, he's not the only one still today. You know, this is like an issue. They just put, now they put Jewish faces on top of it and Rebbe's and everything else. And they're also sitting inside of all the synagogues. And it's no different, in my opinion, than the L.A. Times of people sitting in there reading it. So he was ahead of his time. Yes. But he he didn't. And if you asked him why he went, because you would say, you know, Papa, you don't believe in God. Why are you going? And he he would say your grandmother deserves it. But really, it was 
he didn't he didn't know what else to do. Like that was the only way he knew how to grieve. Wow. And so even as an atheist, right, our frameworks were all Jewish. I got my first bike because I negotiated it from the Afi Komen, right? Like Right. <laughs> it was all done in Jewish language. Wow. That's amazing. So for self-described atheists, you sure seem to think a lot about religion. Was there ever a point where you said, forget about this, I don't care about any of this stuff anymore? Or were you always like fascinated with trying to figure out religion on your own terms or, or what? I think I always loved it. I was always oddly the most observant in my family. I was the one who would drag us to, to Kol Nidre. Kol Nidre is my favorite service of the year. Wow. But there was one year, you know, I feel like this is exactly a perfect example of my relationship with Judaism. There was one year that I dragged my mother to Kol Nidre and no one in my family wanted to go. And part of that is because they were, my parents were raised ultra Orthodox. And so it was like, I don't want to, right? Like, I don't want to go and sit through this thing. And it was sort of an, an unpleasant experience for them. Well, my mom was raised ultra Orthodox. My dad is a slightly different story. And then we were driving to Yom Kippur service and I had a panic attack. And I was like, nope, never mind. I want to go home. And so it was always central and something I yearned for. And also something that I just knew that if I were to go to Kol Nidre, I would think about people dying in the gas chambers and like saying the Shema as they died. It just sometimes would get too triggering for me. And I was like, I can't, I can't go. We lost so much family and those images were just so ingrained. You know, my grandparents had the tattoos and I would hear them waking up from nightmares. And it was just such a huge part of my childhood. We could not go to dinner without talking about the Holocaust. That wow. I, I had a panic attack at the idea of going to temple and hearing the Shema. That is so crazy. It is. It's really crazy. It's so odd. It, it's odd, but it's that, you know, at the same time, it's it's one thing somebody experiences something firsthand. Even secondhand, when you see, obviously, you know, all the pictures and different things like that. But, you know, for you, it was your grandparents, right? It's almost like a, a gene being passed down of remembering something that, you know, you didn't technically experience yourself, but your grandparents experienced it almost, you know what I mean? And being so invested in... And, and just even the idea and the discussion about the Holocaust is deeper than that, that your connection to what happened in those chambers uh, is, is very, very, it's very, very real and very close to you. Something was passed down to you, this, this trauma almost, you know. I think it's actually something commendable, you know. One of the things that we should be doing is we should feel every Jew hurts, you know, or every every Jew feels a certain way, you know what I'm saying? Something about amachad belevachad, you know, something about every person being connected to the next and and us being one people, one heart. So I just thought it was interesting. So in 2016, you launched one of the biggest podcasts in the world. And I believe it was number two overall podcast on iTunes, like for a long time. Um, reading Harry. Yeah, we've lost some listeners. You lost some listeners. We <laughs> well, have. Reading Harry Potter, like like you'd read it. And I hope you forgive me, but the comparison was like, you're reading it like you're learning Gemara, like you're learning Talmud. Yeah. How did this even come about? So I was halfway through my divinity school studies, and I really thought I was going to get to divinity school and learn how to pray with the Torah and, like, somehow get over my trauma, like, my traumatic responses to Torah. And I was halfway through the three years, and I was like, it's not happening. And I was really worried that... um I was I like wasn't gonna learn how to pray, and so I asked my favorite professor, who's a 
Christian minister. <laughs> I was like, will you teach me how to pray with Jane Eyre? Because I love Jane Eyre. And so I think that this will be easier. And then I can do the Torah. And I just thought it would be like a baby step. And the, by the way, the reason that my favorite professor is a Christian minister is A, that she's an amazing person. And B, that Harvard Divinity School is still pretends to be a pluralistic place. But there is one Jewish professor there. John Levinson, he's great. He would have had no interest in teaching me. So Stephanie agreed. And I did a lot of Jewish reading about how to practice Chavruta and how to do Jesus, Jesus, Jewish exegesis, which if you put the two together, sounds a lot like Jesus, apparently. Right, right. And practiced with Jane Eyre and found that even by the end, I still couldn't get myself to like turn to the Torah. Wow. And so I started talking to people um, specifically my friend Casper Turkile, who was like, Vanessa, this is a really interesting idea. It's not, right, like, it's not just Jews who are traumatized by religion. Casper's gay, and he obviously has a very strong understanding of people who feel unwelcome in religion because of their sexuality. And he was like, a lot of people love religion, and the body of religion has traumatized them so that they don't have access to it. And so why don't we do it with a book that people, as he would say, actually like, unlike Jane Eyre, which is the Harry Potter books. And so we started it just as a class, you know, um, and depending on the week, between like 30 and 80 people would come and we would do Pardes and we would do Chavruta and we would do some similar Christian practices like Lectio Divina and Ignatian Imagination. And it was just it was transformative for people, just like, right, like Bible study. It was just transformative for people the way that being in conversation with the text is. And it looked so Jewish to me. You, you would love it. It was people's heads bent together over a text, right? Like it was just beautiful. Wow. And so people started writing in from all over the world as they found out about it, being like, can I Skype in? This was before Zoom. And we were like, no, something really intimate is happening here. Like, th there's no real way. Right. You can't replicate this, you know? Right. <laughs> the revolution will not be televised. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And um, a friend recommended we turn it into a podcast. And that was that. Wow. That's amazing. So, like, while you were doing that, I'm just anxious to know, when you were going through that, and even the other Harry Potter books, and you're reading it, like, it's a sacred text, right? So, did you learn something that surprised you or changed the way that you viewed faith altogether from it? Yes, I really did. So, I will say, like, I am not naturally a huge Harry Potter fan. These are books that have inspired millions of people and I actually do believe that millions of people can be wrong right like <laughs> politically in any number of reasons but right this text is a text ultimately about love saving people and like you can criticize the text for any number of other things but it is about love and sacrifice saving others and what I've learned is I mean really that conversation with the text can change you and specifically can make you braver because you can turn to a text and learn that your faith in it is going to be rewarded by being curious, by being disciplined. And those are the preconditions for courage. And as someone who is so obsessed with the Holocaust, courage is the thing that I think religion should be attempting to generate within us so that we prevent similar things from happening again. And so as soon as I saw that conversation with a text could pr help us practice courage, because it's so low risk, right? If you're judging Ron Weasley, no one actually gets hurt. You get to like practice all of these things. 
And so as soon as I saw that, I was sold. I was like, okay, people can get braver doing this. Let's go. It's so amazing. Like, I think the biggest thing for me is like, it's so hard because I've never been through any of the Harry Potter books. I'm be very, very honest. I'm, I've, I've never done Harry Potter. Jane, I've never done also two. It's very interesting for me. Bible, I have done. Yes. I've done that a number of times, right? <laughs> so you describe yourself as an atheist, right? I describe myself as a believer. So all the things that gets into my gut and makes makes it start moving are this, um, I don't know, whatever hard to describe. I mean, you may have it also in your own language, also to this this super uh, divine and closeness feeling that I feel sometimes when I'm reading the text, you know, especially when I was like really starting out my journey, was it was an excitement for me. But I think the biggest thing that made me feel that way is because I felt that everything you know, wholeheartedly felt and feel that what I'm reading is a, is a thousand percent true. Don't have a slightest doubt that what I'm reading is true and is so real. And you took books that you know are fiction and you're like giving yourself chizuk and giving yourself strength from them. And then it's, I find it really amazing that you're able to do that. Do you think that is something specifically, let's talk about Jane Eyre because you're off the boy wizard now. So let's talk about Jane. Mm-hmm. It, what is it about her specifically that captivates you? Is it because she's brave and that's what helped you to come to bravery? Or what is it about her specifically? So um, Joyce Carol Oates says that the key line in Jane Eyre is, I resisted all the way. And she is, it's at the very beginning of the book. It's the first line of chapter two. And she is just living in this really unjust house. She's an orphan who's been taken in by her aunt. And even though her uncle on his deathbed made her aunt promise that she would care for Jane as if Jane was one of her own, her aunt has just been horribly abusive. And she's about to get locked into this room. And it's, I resisted all the way and that stays true for Jane throughout the book people keep telling her who she is and she resists and she resists and that I again like as someone who's obsessed with the holocaust right like if (laughs) gentiles came out of their houses and resisted all the way like it wouldn't happen right and I was also just raised you know with that Israeli spirit right of like we don't get in lines right like you any time there was a line my father would say our family has stood in line enough for many generations and wow oh yeah we were trained to never line up you know what you saying that i'm so sorry to cut you off no please maybe the reason why nobody stands in lines in israel oh that is exactly why no one stands in lines in israel it's just like it is so hard to get a line and you know coming from america that's like my first uh culture shock that i have when i get here is that nobody stands in line so the whole thing i'm telling you standing in line and you were saying something so beautiful i'm sorry to to make this into comedy but it's a really no i love this you're helping me to come to grips with this because it's every time I'm standing somewhere and I think I'm next in in line, quote unquote, right? Totally. There's somebody on the side of me, somebody on the other side of me. So I got to keep moving <laughs> to get closer because I'm waiting because I know this person next to me, he may he may go before me. The whole thing is a competition, I always feel like. And, you know, and I'm... I, Getting on a bus in Israel is like a football game. Exactly. For sure. I'm ready to box him out. It just annoys me up to my core, you know. And I can be mocha, everybody. With that idea to, to understand the standing in a line, God forbid, ever at a gas chamber, it just... It just Okay, so we don't stand in lines. That I'm okay with. I you just helped me. You you did some healing for me today. You did some healing for me. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, but it shows how trauma creates problems for yourself because standing in line is a necessary evil in the world. Like you have to stand in line to have some basic order at the bank or at the bus stop. Right. It's just like, I mean, it's complete mashugas, right? Like the Jews are like, nope, we're just not doing that anymore. It's chaos. It's complete chaos. But yeah, and so I that spirit in Jane of I resisted all the way. And the other thing that I love about Jane is that she's constantly tempted to stop resisting. She is given compelling evidence that she shouldn't. And she always almost gets convinced, right? She's like, do you know what? Maybe it is best for me if I just give in to this. And then she doesn't at the last minute. She finds that courage. And she's willing to risk a lot. She risks her life. She risks starving and exposure. And I am not that brave (laughs) at all. I have all of these ethical commitments that I don't live out because I'm scared, you know, for my body. Um, When I should be more scared for my soul, Jane just like puts her body where her mouth is and will crawl into bed with a friend of hers who's dying of tuberculosis and doesn't care that it might be contagious and runs away in the middle of the night from a precarious romantic situation. So she just, she's this like guiding light of courage. So of course she keeps getting rewarded for it, which is the fictional magical part of it. But Right. That's, it's very, very deep and it's amazing. Talk about trauma. I also have experienced some type of trauma like that. Shortly after my conversion, I think I had four or three kids, I think at this time, I had two and a third one on the way. Uh, we were expecting we were homeless for one year. We went homeless. I lost my job. And I left music already by this time. I wasn't involved in music. I just I just started returning back to music. And the job that I had, I was there maybe three, four years or something like that. I can't remember how long I was there. I lost that job. And immediately at the same time, the owner of the apartment that I was living in needed to move back an emergency from Seattle. She had moved out of town. And she needed to move back, emergency, back to Seattle. And we had to be out. The lease was already up. It wasn't so much that we could do about it. And And, you know, just completely crushed after this. And we went from staying by friend's house. You know, obviously on on Shabbos, we made sure that we were inside the neighborhood. But outside of that, we spent a lot of time at at friend's house or I ended up at my mother-in-law's house. uh, And, you know, she's not Jewish, devout Christian. There was a cross on every single wall, which is great for her. But it's very hard to daven for me inside that type of environment because I can't pray where there's a cross. Yeah. It put us in a very, very tough situation of going from basement to basement. There were nights I slept in my car um, because, you know, we'd be staying at one place and there's not enough room for everybody in the bed. So I had to sleep outside in the car. So it was a very, very tough and traumatic experience. And I remember us after we finally got an apartment, you know, thank God I was able to get a job and, and, and things worked out. Literally was a year from June 1st to June 1st. I remember like maybe a few weeks after, you know, and everybody told us that, you know, when you come out of this, it's going to be times you look back at it and you laugh. It took a while to get there, but we, we ended up getting there. One time we were sitting on the stairs and I think we almost like cried because we were so uh, traumatized. We were afraid to turn on the lights. You know, when you're staying in other people's place, you don't want to keep the lights on. You don't want to walk run the water too long and we were living in our house like that after a while looking and just like hold on you just went through a traumatic experience and it's okay to turn on the lights you know it's okay to let the water run you know um so sometimes overcoming that trauma could be very very difficult 
I believe very much so. You know, it's been written in the books. Pretty soon the Jewish people are going to be laughing. We're going to be laughing. I really think so. So back to you. So I want to ask you, this is probably going to be like my last question. If I can hold myself, it's going to be my last question. So you you speak of reading this as a sacred practice. So what do you mean when you say that? And is there an insight um, that you can give over to other people that can identify from this with something that's a completely secular text that they'll be able to benefit from? Absolutely. So what we talked about is faith, rigor, and community. So faith being faith that the more time you spend with the text, the more blessings it will give you. That no time spent with the text is spent in vain, right? Like just like time with your children, right? Like even when they're driving you nuts, it's still a mitzvah of you spending time. Right. And so that is the essential precondition that we would say. And we use a lot of language from Simone Weil, the Jewish slash flirting with Catholic philosopher from uh, 1930s Paris. So she she talks about the necessary precondition being faith. And then rigor, we mean ritual. So and that can mean a lot of things. One of the ways we do that is through using multi-step reading practices like Pardes. Um, and so, but that also means we're going to do this once a week on the same day at the same time. And we now have local groups that meet all over the world from Latvia to Seattle that meet once a week to do sacred reading together. And so that is what we mean by the rigor. And then community is that you can't do it alone. You have to do it in conversation with other people because otherwise you're going to get stuck in your own ideas. It's harder to do something alone. So like you just want the gym buddy effect, but really, right. It's this like yeshivanek idea, right? Of like you need two heads bent over a text in order for the practice to be sacred. Wow, that's amazing. That is amazing. I okay, I was gonna hold myself, but I have one last question. Because and it's just because it's so interesting to me. Like when I'm listening to you, I'm hearing you like, you know, everything I'm translating into Torah. Yeah. And I love Torah. I love Torah. I can, that's also this is why I'm asking you this last question. So for a person who would describe yourself as a non-believer, sort of had some yearning that something would show, something would flip over somehow, some way, and you can get involved. What do you think it would take for you to move yourself from the dial of being a non-believer to being a believer? What will it take? It's such a good question. It would take some sort of like real change in in the in the suffering of a community. You know, living in America right now is I'm living in America always, right? Like this is a country built on slavery and right. African American men are disproportionately incarcerated and right like and it's just I like I would need prison abolition, a jubilee of I, I would need something like that, some big gesture of justice on this earth. Right. And I just don't, I, I feel like we're in the middle of a lot of those revolutions, but but I don't see those, I don't see a gesture like that in my lifetime. Um, and, and I would, the other thing is, if I saw a way that religion could make me deeply, deeply more committed to social justice, then I also think I would become a believer. If I was like, okay, if I really believe like Hashem will save me, if I let people into my home and like that nothing bad will happen to me, even if I let a stranger into my home, if I started to grow that courage, then I think I would also become a believer. And so like, I'm really open to it. I'm open to it. 
Right, right. Now I hear you. We're going to have to have you for Shabbos. I can't wait to have you. I, uh, please. I, we hope to come to Israel soon. I, we might be doing a book event at Yad Vashem. Oh, wow. Wow. That's big. If I get booked for that, I will let you know. And I Okay. Please. We got to do Shabbos together. Please, please, please. I'm looking forward. Thank you so much, Vanessa. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Really do. It's been it amazing. An honor. Mom, mine. All mine. Wow. Wow. This conversation did a lot for me, um, really, because initially just sort of like checking her out, I really didn't think that she was like going to be so strong in faith as she already is, even though she says she doesn't have faith. But she has a lot more faith than a lot of people I know who say they do have faith. It was a very, very interesting conversation for me because of that. And I feel like she strengthened me in a huge way. I was able to come to some healing based off of what she said, obviously about the line, why there's some trauma from standing in a line. So all of these things make sense to me. But I think one of the biggest things she said was about being steady, not leaving the text and not giving up on reading the text and being involved. And if that isn't such a Torah concept, then I don't know what is. So it was real for me. And I'm just uh, really rooting for Vanessa to come to Israel so we can have her for Shabbos. And I can't wait for that experience. So after having this discussion, as I have said, and I will continue to say, I got a song. I like to play it. Want to hear it? So the song I want to play for this is Mercy. The reason why I want to play it is because, you know, as she spoke about her relationship to the character Jane Eyre and this um, longing and, and desire um, and searching for, for something and the resistance of constant resistance and the courage uh, to keep fighting for something. And, you know, it just seems to be her overall way or mahalach, you know, um, and, and the way she's reading these texts. Um, I was fighting and really digging deep inside of myself when I at the time that I actually wrote this song and when it actually came into fruition so um, it made me think of this song so you guys all enjoy it and listen to it and until next time remember to only go from strength to strength Down and now, then I can't figure out why you do it to me. Yeah. I'm so 
surrounded on all sides, yeah I tried to get back up, but I find that I fall maybe harder than before, yeah God, I'm in war, yeah I feel I can't get up now Cause every time I fall down, I'm fighting the enemy And it won't let me break out Heal me, only give me what I need to proceed to the place I should be Open up the gates and make a wait on me God, please help me Cause I'm low and falling down And I need you to pull me out Cause I just wanna grow, 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 yeah And I want you to take control, yeah And have mercy on me Will you pick me up again? Will you pull me closer in? Cause I just wanna know, 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 yeah And I want you to bring me closer Feel you in my heart only sometimes But I need you in my life right now, yeah Can't move without you, I'm full of doubts, yeah Show me what I can do when I only want you When I only want truth, my king, yeah You are my only help Yes, 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 you are my only help God, please help me, cause I'm low and falling down, and I need you to pull me out, cause I just wanna grow, 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 yeah, and I want you to take control, yeah, and have Thank you so much for listening to The Deal with me, Nisim Black. It's a production of the Joshua Network. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Our producer is Gilad Brownstein. Please follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at The Deal with NB. And subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast content. Please share this with your friends so that they can get this raw and riveting stuff from me, yours truly, God's Man. And I want you to take control, yeah, and have mercy on me. Will you pick me up again? Will you pull me closer in? Cause I just wanna know, 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 yeah. And I want you to bring me closer, yeah. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.